exhortation from our Lord Jesus and uh, the Apostle Paul. And our Lord said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray once more. Oh God, my heart is full. Full from hearing the voices of my brothers and sisters sing, sing to me. By your spirit, you have filled my heart by their singing. And that is because we weren't just singing words. What we sang is true. It's true. Praise your name. Praise your name. So, simply pray now that you would make your word clear to us. And by your spirit, would you continue to fill our hearts with you, with the truth. You embodied in your truth. So, Please commission your spirit to work now. Build us up into you, we ask. Amen. The fate of the Union rested with a college professor. On the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg, the Union was beaten back. So then on the second day, the South attacked, and the left line, the end of the left flank of the Union ended on a hill called Little Round Top, and John Chamberlain, a college professor from Maine, was assigned to hold it. If he didn't, the Southern Army could turn on the line and decimate the entire Northern Army. So throughout the day, wave after wave of Alabama infantry charged that little hill, and each time Chamberlain and his men held. And when they were finally out of ammunition and their line was beginning to bend back on itself, Chamberlain quietly issued the order, fix bayonets. No other order was needed, and the men charged down the hill. 101 Alabama infantry were taken captive that day, and when a southern army officer fired at Chamberlain at point-blank range, the ball whistled by his head, but Chamberlain did not move, holding his sword at the man's throat, and the officer surrendered. You can still see that pistol in a museum in Maine today. And the Union line held. Chamberlain held, the Union line held, and the Union held. Because Chamberlain and his boys from Maine were steadfast and immovable on the little patch of ground that they were assigned to. The modern American church needs to relearn this message, the need to be immovable. We have become, in Spurgeon's famous words, as firm as water. And this explains why our culture is so out of shape itself. We are the salt and we are the light. 
But this is a timeless problem. Paul commanded the Corinthian church to be immovable because they weren't. And that, it's that passage that we must pay heed to today as we move into the future. We must learn afresh why we need to be immovable. Therefore, we, must need, we need to relearn just what that word means to be immovable. And we must therefore relearn how to be immovable. So why? Why should we be immovable? Well, first, because God. Because God. There's actually two passages here that uh, that Annie read a minute ago that seem to reflect each other. And the first is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you need to ask yourself what? What's the therefore, therefore? Yes, well done, class. Yeah. <laughs> And here it is referring back to the entire chapter 15, which begins with the cross and ends with the glorious words about the resurrection. Because of the gospel, be steadfast, immovable, because God. What about the gospel? Well, that there is a God who is himself, the $10 word, the theological word that we use to describe God is immutable, which simply means unchanging, immovable. He is unchanging. He is God, and His character is the same today as it was five years ago, as it was 500 years ago, as it was 5,000 years ago. He is the same, which means that what was righteousness or sin five minutes ago, five years ago, 5,000 years ago is the same then as it is today. It is unchanging. Mankind has progressed in many things, but one of them is not in our goodness. We've only found more civilized and electronic ways to sin, which would leave us by itself in the most pitiable place, no matter how we progress um, in pain management and advances in technology, that, that would still leave us in a pitiable place in our sins. But God had mercy on us. And thus Paul begins the chapter by reminding us of the center of everything, beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. It's not just that you believe the gospel once and then you're saved, you're, you're, you're saved and then you are saved by the gospel, in which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I have delivered to you as of first importance what I, also, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. There's the center of everything. There's the center of the Bible of everything. God pitied us and he made a way for us to be forgiven, to be released from our guilt that enslaved us. But even that would leave us, actually, in a pitiable place if God had stopped there. As Paul says later in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We who sacrifice, who tithe, who do all these things, and then it just goes to nothing. Like, what good is that? Pitiable. And again, we all die. Death is the curse of sin. Even if it's forgiven, we still die. So Paul goes on back in verse 4, not only was Christ crucified, but verse 4, he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And the result is that even for those who have, quote, fallen asleep, it is only falling asleep. Death is only falling asleep because those who have died will rise with Christ. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's as if there's this great big basket and Christ is just the first apple from that basket of fruit. 
For as by a man came death, by for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, we will all be raised. But, as they say on TV, there's more. <laughs> Do you believe that? Verse 24, then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying, destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, which is reflecting Psalm 110.1, the most quoted verse in the New Testament. The point here is that Jesus is risen and he reigns now, and he is now putting all of his enemies under his feet. He's doing that now, and he will do it. He will complete it. The proof is the cross and the resurrection. In a world that is as immovable as water, God is bringing all of it into alignment with his own character, and he is immovable, steadfast in this. The proof of it is the resurrection from the dead, the empty tomb. And he proved it to us. He has proved it to us. And so we do not see it all now, but he is doing it, and we believe it. We believe that he will bring it to completion. He will bring it to completion. So Paul says, because of God, because of God, be steadfast, immovable, because your God is steadfast, immovable, and bringing all things to literally become his kingdom. That's what God is doing. He is doing it. You can't see it right now. It takes faith. We'll get to that. But he is, at this moment, fulfilling Habakkuk 2.14. There, there will come a time when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that will be completed when he returns, but he is moving toward that now in this age, steadfastless, steadfastly, immovably. Therefore, my beloved, because of this reality, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, because of this reality, be steadfast. Jed, preach to myself here, Jed, because of God, be steadfast and movable as your God in heaven is steadfast and movable. So that's the first reason why we should be immovable. But the second reason is because threats, because threats. The second reason is because while God advances his kingdom, and, and more and more towns and counties and countries become Christianized, the darkness will not just say, oh, okay, go ahead, have at it, destroy me. Um, no, remember what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, Christ has enemies, lots of them. So, and, and Christ's enemies fight dirty. <laughs> Christ's enemies fight dirty. Take the case of Jack Phillips, the baker in Colorado who has refused to make cakes celebrating events that are against his beliefs. As a Christian, cake baker, enemy of the darkness. <laughs> Never mind that the government has no right to tell him what he should and should not bake, bake in his business, but, but time and again, his enemies have set him up in order to use Colorado law against him. So most recently, someone ordered a cake celebrating Satan. They didn't want the cake. It was just a setup, just a setup. Uh, to use the law against him and to cause an occasion to sue him again. And don't, don't think that this is an isolated case. Lust, by definition, does not stay within its banks. It flows like a torrent of water to take over the, to whatever it wants. And it, and it does this. It's happening now in Colorado, the home of Colorado Springs. 
Springs, the home of a city with over a hundred Christian organizations, the home of Focused on the Family, the home of Compassion International, and many other Christian organizations. It's happening in Colorado. Colorado. If a baker in Colorado is subjected to this, all of us are open to the same treatment. But God does not, at the same time, give us permission to fight dirty in response. We do not have permission to fight fire with fire. Jack Phillips is forbidden by his God from gaslighting those who gaslight him and entrapping those who entrap him. Forbidden. No, God calls Jack Phillips to stand, immovable, on the little hill that the Father has assigned him, and he calls us to stand immovably alongside him when the time comes. And this is hard. <laughs> Newsflash. This is hard. I mean, I, I, cannot believe, I, I cannot imagine how hard, every time I see him in the headlines again, he's getting sued again. I think how hard this must be to go back and make another cake under the, the cloud of a yet another lawsuit. Well, heaven only knows. But the reality is, you see, everything is fine. Everything is fine to the world as long as you just think in the privacy of your own mind that Jesus is king. Problem comes when you start acting like it. <laughs> That's when things get gritty. That's when things, there's friction. Um, that's when HR departments get phone calls. That's when, that's when lawyers lawyer up. So for too long, there have been plenty of cowardly Christians who have been all too willing to point the finger back at Jack Phillips and people like him and to say, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You need to be nicer. It's the 11th commandment. But no one, no one should say that Jack Phillips has done everything perfect, but I'm not aware of anything for which God would judge him. If he's imprisoned, lots of Christians will never visit him for their cowardice, cloaked in respectability. So because of threats, we need to learn afresh how to be steadfast and immovable because the enemies of God, the enemies of Christ are all around us. And the only thing that holds them back is God's sovereign hand. And if he were to lift his hand just a bit, a lot can change. So much so that the last three years would seem like child's play. Um, we need to learn afresh how to be steadfast, immovable, because of God, because of threats, and because of love. Because of love, the last reason we need to relearn to be steadfast and immovable is that it is love. To be steadfast and immovable is love. And I, I get this from what I think is happening in the second passage, as I said earlier, is kind of a, the second passage here is kind of a reflection of the first one that was read. Again, verse 58 of, of chapter 15, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So there's an ing word there in the word abounding, which tells you that's how you do what was just commanded. How do I uh, be steadfast and movable? I do it by always abounding in the work of the Lord. Then later in chapter 16, verse 12, Paul tells the Corinthians that uh, he had asked the, the other emissary, a, a preacher, Apollos, to visit them, but Apollos steadfastly refused because the Corinthians wanted to make celebrities out of Apollos and Paul, and Apollos is like, no, I'm not having that. Um, there's only one celebrity, it's Christ. So I'm not coming. <laughs> I think that's great. So Paul is essentially saying to them, you're on your own. No one's coming to help. 
So verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Which is basically Paul elaborating on what he's already said. What does it mean to be steadfast and immovable? To be watchful, standing firm in the faith, acting like men, being strong. But then verse 14 maps over from chapter 15, verse 58. What is the work of the Lord? It is to let all that you do be done in love. To, to pull all this together, the third reason we need to relearn how to be immovable is that to be immovable is love. So the, 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 the people that are suing Jack Phillips in Colorado don't realize it, but Jack Phillips is being resolute and holding his little hill for them, for the very people that are suing him. Think about this with kids. A parent withholds and is, is immovable on what we're going to have for dinner and does not allow his child just to go have ice cream all the time. Why? Because the kid will just be, you know, like, won't grow. It'll be awful for them. It'll be awful. Just be eating ice cream and chips all the time. And, and so the, the parent is immovable on the vegetables out of love because he loves the child. In the Lord of the Rings books, when, when the fellowship of the ring is chased in the, in the caverns by the Belrog and Gandalf stands before that thing, this, the demonic monster with his staff and he hammers it down and he yells, thou shalt not pass. He does that in love for the friends behind him. There is a consequence for everything, everything that we, that we tolerate, everything that we tolerate. Um, we can't have it. We can't have it both ways. Um, if, for instance, I saw a video of a of a of a family friendly uh, transvestite uh, drag show, drag drag queen show, and their children there. You know, and the the dancer is dancing and doing all kinds of lascivious things. And and um, you 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 can't tolerate something like that and not at the same time be at the very same moment denigrating womanhood, denigrating the very concept of womanhood and putting children in moral danger. The toleration of the one has consequences. Always. Always. Love, therefore, is steadfast, immovable, or it is not love. You cannot tolerate that, that drag queen show and be loving those children and love womanhood. You can't. It's one or the other, either or. So I, I don't say this right now out of uh, hatred. I, I, I say what, what I just said because I love womanhood and children. <laughs> Not because I hate a transvite drag queen guy. No, out of love. So we, we must relearn to be steadfast and immovable because of God because of their clear and present dangers and threats, and because that's what love is. Love is immovable, steadfast. So now, more, more briefly than this, we, we need to stop and consider just what does it mean to be steadfast and immovable. I've already given some examples, but by steadfast and immovable, I, I believe here Paul means two things. First, he means to be steadfast and immovable, not, not uh, moving from what? From the Bible. The Bible defines for us what love is. What love is. If someone tells you out there, XYZ is loving, you should ask them, by what standard do you, what is your definition of love first? And then by what standard did you arrive at that definition? Um, 
So, but, th but there's a big, bold letter version of this, and then there's a more subtle version of this being steadfast and immovable and not moving from the Bible. So the big, bold letter version of this is simply remaining true to God's law and God's commands. This is what the Corinthians were facing. They were tolerating sins. Paul says that even outsiders in, in Corinth, in pagan, immoral Corinth, would not even tolerate. A guy, a guy in their church had taken his, uh, his father's wife, and they're gallivanting around the church, and no one's saying anything. <laughs> Paul's like, come on, you know what you need to do. You just got to do it. You just have the courage to do it. Act like men. Do it. Come on. Deal with it. I mean, for, for redemption, deal with it for reconciliation, not, but you need to act on this. Um, act like men, not, not flimsy uh, pansies here. So, and, and as I said earlier, what was righteousness and sin 20 or 200 years ago or 2,000 years ago is sin today. The question is not what does the Bible say. The question is whether we will be immovable, immovable when we are faced with great pressure about what the Bible says. You know, when, when Pride Month comes along and the t-shirts and the flags are handing out, handed out at the office, that's when the rubber meets the road. Um, so, that, so there's that. There's the big, bold, black letter version of this, but then there's a more subtle temptation here. And this is, has to do with things that, um, it, 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 there's a subtle temptation here to do things that, that give us a, um, uh, a distance from the, the threats out there, but still allow us in here in our Christian circles to say, I'm faithful to the Bible. And that subtle temptation is to use different vocabulary than what the Bible says. Than what the Bible says. So um, we, we, we pull this trick by changing words and using a different vocabulary. So for instance, um, let me take one word here, that's, and I've, I've chosen this word because it has uh, I'm, it may offend you, <laughs> um, but that's the point. Uh, the word sodomite. We don't use the word sodomite anymore. We use the word homosexual, which, which is not, in all cases not bad, but, but there's a subtle shift there because the word sodomite has, has built into it the reality that I mentioned earlier, that lust does not stay in the defined space that we wish it would. We say, oh, a little lust, it can just be right here. Just, just stay in my bedroom, right? You know, just stay in my bedroom. And then you have choirs of men saying, we're coming for your children. It, it doesn't stay in its, in its place. Um, that's what sodomite carries that reality within it. Whereas the word homosexual carries with it just simply a, a more neutral description of someone's activity. Um, but it, it is a subtle shift from what the Bible actually says about that, about that sin. And so if you ever hear me use that word, it's, it's not because I'm, I'm trying to, it's, it's because I'm trying to uh, practice what I preach right here, right now. Not to be hateful, not to be harmful to anyone but actually in love to use the Bible's vocabulary, not because I necessarily even like to, not because I enjoy it, but because the Bible's vocabulary is love, is love. Um, and besides, if we, if we deviate too far from the Bible's vocabulary, we're just playing the devil's game because the, the opposite is being run on Christians all the time. You know, I would say if someone comes in to see me and they say, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with same-sex attraction, there's another uh, euphemism, I would exhort them toward repentance uh, of their sexual immorality, 
um, to a biblical faith in Christ and out of that faith in Christ to a sanctified life according to the law, the royal law of the Bible. Um, but the outside world would say, I'm conducting conversion therapy, and that's illegal and hateful and abusive to do that. So, um, and, and when you don't wear the t-shirt during Pride Month, that you will be called hateful and bigoted. So, we, we must, the, the, that game is being played on Christians, so why would we play the game too? We, we must not let the enemies of Christ, put it this way, determine our dictionary and our definitions. We must let the Bible do that. We must let the Bible define terms and let Christ, um, and then Christ calls us to submit to those terms. So we must, immovable means to, to submit ourselves both to the, the bold letter words of Scripture, but then to, to both in the bold letters and black and white, but also in spirit, not using euphemisms, but using the vocabulary of Scripture. And again, I, I realize I, I've thrown some terms out here that, that maybe, maybe you have found slightly offensive, and, and I want to say uh, I don't do that to offend you. I, I bring up something that may be offensive to you because how you're feeling right now about it may be indicative of the fact that you have been trained by the outside more than you realize. I, I don't enjoy being provocative. I'm being provocative to maybe reveal something that's going on in your heart, okay? So, secondly, to be steadfast and immutable means to keep a single-minded focus on love. In fact, Paul commands always be abounding, overflowing in the work of the Lord, which is the work of love. So this means to, to bring more and more of our lives as in, into God's working of love in the world. And, and this is what the world cannot understand. How can someone be steadfast and immovable to the Bible and even... And, any point in their life, use the word sodomite and have, have that word come out of your mouth, and yet at the same time be doing it all in love, all in love for sodomites. How, how, does, that even, how does that even work? That doesn't even compute. But this is precisely, this is precisely what Paul, or excuse me, what Peter's talking about when he tells us always to be ready, 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready in your hearts to honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet to do it with gentleness and respect. So we've, we've made this into something about we're, we're so nice and awesome, and then, and then people come up to us and say, how'd you get so nice and awesome? Tell me, tell me about why you're so awesome, nice and awesome. M- meanwhile, what's, what's actually happening here is that, is that we are provocative, and they, they don't have a file folder to put us in. How does that even work? Someone who's so steadfast and immovable and yet so filled with love, where does that come from? Good question. Let me tell you. Let me give give a defense for how this works. Christ. Christ. Christ, who who was steadfast and immovable and set his face like flint towards the cross to die for me. Me, who was who needed it more than anyone else in the world, for me. He was steadfast and immovable. Why? In love towards me. That's how this works. Um, so the, the greatest charge made against Christians from the very beginning, right up until the present day, is that we are actually atheists. We're actually atheists. We don't worship the particular gods of whatever generation we live in. And that's very offensive. We don't worship the environment or sexuality or the self or mammon, and this causes offense. 
And so the world says, what's up with you? What's up with you? You offend me, and yet I cannot deny your love, so what gives? By what standard do you arrive at these things? And we say, let me tell you. Let me answer you. So be steadfast, immovable, and that means to hold to the Bible in the black letters and in spirit, and to be single-minded in bringing all of our lives under God's work of love in the world. And so the last question then is, okay, so how, how do we do this? And there's three ways that Paul mentions in Corinthians, and the first is faith. Faith. Faith that, verse 57 says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over death, victory over all of Christ's enemies through Jesus Christ. The cross is the victory, and the Spirit of God in our hearts is the promise of that victory coming to fruition. Jesus is reigning, and He will bring about the completion of that victory. But faith, faith sees the cross, faith sees the cross and believes that, believes that we live now in an age of victory. It has been won at the cross, and He will complete what He has won but in a cross-shaped way, in a cross-shaped way. Jesus won by going to a gory Roman gibbet. First the cross, then the crown. Faith believes what it cannot see right now, not, not yet anyway. The question is not what the power, the question is, as Jesus asked when he returns, will he find faith on earth? So the question for us is the same one that God asked Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37.3, and he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel answered, oh, Lord God, you know. <laughs> what God wanted to hear is, yes, yes, you will. You will raise them. If you would breathe life into them, if God would breathe the life of the Spirit into us and into our nation, there is nothing stopping God from creating an, a third great awakening in our country. Widespread repentance across, across the nation. Utter transformation. Nothing stopping it. Nothing stopping Christ from doing that, like that. Nothing, nothing. That, that, that's not the question. The question is, will he find faith? Will he find faith? Do we believe that these bones can live? These bones, dead bones of people everywhere, dead bones of a culture, do we believe that it can live? Do we? Do we? That's the question. So first, we, we learn to be steadfast by faith. Paul says, and then secondly, we learn to be immovable by hope, by hope, by forward-looking anticipation of the blessing and the reward of God upon our obedience. And again, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, we see the, um, that, that ing word that tells you how to do the command. How do we abound in the work of the Lord? By knowing, by knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. By hoping in that. Jack Phillips, you and me, we can know that God will take our faith and our steadfastness that we exercise on our little plot of earth and make it into something good and blessed and valuable far beyond what we can imagine. Because He's God. Because He's God. If we make it go deep, God will make it go wide. If we make our hope and our faith go deep and high, He will make it go wide beyond what we could imagine. If we hold our hill, God will save the army. If we hold our flank, God will save the nation. That's what hope looks like. That's what hope looks like. It's not, it's not just for you. It's not just when, when Christ comes, He's going to get me, although that's part of it. But it is, that God, it is that God is a God who can do whatever He wants, whatever He dreams of. 
That's what hope looks like, and that's the hope that should feed our steadfastness in the face of painful threats. Well, the last way we relearn immovability is found in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and I'll paraphrase it as, you got, you got it in you. You got it in you. When Paul says, act like men, be strong, he's appealing to their design of everyone, but especially the male elders of the church. And he's essentially saying, no help is coming, but there is more in you, in your design, designed by God, filled with the Holy Spirit working in you. There is more in that than you realize. In fact, there is enough in that right there to endure and remain steadfast and immovable on whatever hill I place you. Without question, without question. He is appealing to their design and saying, again, not just in your design, but you're designed by God as filled and empowered by the Spirit. There's more to you than you realize. There's enough to remain steadfast. You can do this. You won't die. Or if you do, you've only been killed by someone who could take the body, and you're still in one who will raise the soul and give your body back in a new and glorified way in the near future anyway. The question is, do we believe that? The question is, Jed, do, do you believe that? Um, so, step into the suit, Paul says. Step into the suit. But believe in yourself, but, but not in a Disney gospel kind of way. But believe in yourself as designed by God. You, you can step into the suit. You, you have strength within you, men and women. You have strength to be courageous, to be strong, to be steadfast and immovable, designed and built in you, and then empowered by the Spirit of God given within you. Um, between these two, your design and the Spirit, there's more than enough in you, more than enough to always be abounding in the work of the Lord, the work of love in all things. There's more to you than you realize. That's what he's saying. So step into the suit, especially when, though you're just a college professor or a cake baker, and the general calls you to hold that hilltop, that bakery counter, hold the line, he says. Hold the line knowing that your work for me will not be in vain. I will reward, and I will reward, God says, far beyond what you think you could have possibly have earned there. <laughs> My reward will be so lavish, you will, you will take your crown at the end and you will set it down before me and you will say, oh, no, 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 it's all you. And you'll be right, but you'll get to enjoy the reward nonetheless. So, God says to us, your work will not be in vain because I can and I will raise these dry bones. I can. Do we have faith to see it? Do we have hope to hope in it? I did it with my own son, and thus I will do it again. So it is between, Paul says, what is the Christian life but faith, hope, and love as we, as we hold this faith in Christ and we exercise this hope between these two lies love. That's the only place that true love can exist. Love that is steadfast and movable, but is full in that steadfast and immovable um, state to have a deep and abiding affection from the heart for the lost, for a lost world. Which is crazy. Which is a miracle. And which is a miracle that God is doing among His people.
So let's, let's pray now. Let's ask the Lord for his grace to make us like this. So let's, let's pray. Father, please grant us grace to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in your work, always abounding in love, doing all that we do in love to a fallen world. Grant us wisdom to know when to be steadfast and immovable and to how to be steadfast and immovable, to be steadfast and immovable as you were with us, gently, sacrificially, humbly, not arrogantly, not spitefully, but handing ourselves over into your hands in faith and hope that by our sacrifice you can raise the dead. And I put myself at the front of the line, Father. I believe these things, but I say, help my unbelief. I hope in these things, but I say, please, help my hope. I say that I love, but I say, teach me to love. So I pray for all of us by your Spirit. Show us Christ more clearly. Show us Christ, that we may walk in his footsteps. His footsteps that are raising the dead and will one day redeem the whole world. Will you do this, please? And will you grant us some part to play in it? Grant us some glimpses of your work that we might be filled with joy in that. And will you do all of this for the glory of your name among the nations? Make your name great and therefore make the joy of the nations great in you, we ask. Amen. Amen. Whoever chose that song, gold star. <laughs> Perfect. So receive the benediction. The risen one has overcome. Has overcome. So for every fear, Christian, there is an empty grave. That is true. Bank your life on it.